0: to be important for what we're talking about this morning. So we're going to do something a little bit different. Normally, because we believe the Bible is the Word of God and it's completely true and it is useful for for teaching reproof, and correction and training and righteousness, normally we just work verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we've been doing that with the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we are going to, uh, next week we're going to do a, a five-part uh, series on the mission values of our church. So... Uh, We're going to talk about that next week, so don't don't spend too much time trying to figure out what that is. We'll tell you next week what what all that's about. And then in February, we're going to start uh, a series through the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is 52 chapters long, so we will be in Jeremiah for the next six years. (laughs) I'm glad you left. I was kidding. It's not going to be that. But Jeremiah is long, and we're going to go through it verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, and explain what the Word of God says. But before we leave the Gospel of Mark, we have to talk about this thing at the end of Mark. It's what we call the long ending of Mark, Mark 16, 9 to 20. And normally, like I said, we preach through books of the Bible, we just go verse by verse and explain it. And while Mark 16, 9 to 20, which I'll just refer to throughout the rest of the sermon as the long ending, while while that's the topic for this morning, we're not going to be preaching through those verses. And the reason is because the long ending of Mark was almost certainly not part of the original text of Mark. It's almost certainly not what Mark wrote. Now this is not simply my opinion, right? It's a general consensus among scholars. And when I say scholars, I'm not talking about liberal scholars who hate the Bible and want to disprove it. I'm talking about conservative, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, evangelical scholars. It's a consensus among them that the long ending was not originally a part of the Gospel of Mark, and so we shouldn't treat it as Holy Scripture. Imagine many of you are going to have questions about that. That may be disconcerting to some of you. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about that this morning. Because if we're going to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, then we're going to get to stuff like this. And we have options as pastors, right? We could simply have stopped our series in the Gospel of Mark at uh, verse 8, when Tom preached a couple weeks ago, and not done anything more with it and just skipped over it and pretended like there was no question about this at all and, uh, and then leave you wondering, how come we skip these verses that are printed at the end of Mark in my Bible? Or we could preach through it as if it was indeed the word of God, but then if it, if it wasn't, we'd be guilty of preaching something to you as the word of God that wasn't actually the word of God. Or we could address the question. We can acknowledge what the questions are about verses 9 to 20. And we could work through it together and offer explanation and instruction for it. Because I think some people will hear things like this and it will make them question the reliability of Scripture. And in fact, if you go online and you watch a YouTube video or you read something that a skeptic has written, they will use things like this to attempt to undermine your confidence in the Word of God. And I think there's no reason for that. I don't think there's any reason that saying that we don't believe verses nine to 20 to have been original ought to undermine your confidence in the Bible. In fact, I hope what we're going to do as we work through this is actually strengthen your confidence in the reliability of the word of God. Right? It's important for us to talk about these things. I want you to have a well-informed confidence in scripture. Because there's a type of confidence in Scripture that's naive and brittle, and it's ready to snap anytime somebody asks a question that sounds reasonable. That's not the kind of confidence I want you to have. I want you to have confidence in Scripture that's not hard and brittle like iron, but strong and tested like steel. And so this morning, as we, as we get into this, we're going to go three places. First, we're going to look at the evidence. How is it that we can say that we think the long ending is not original? Are we just making it up? Or are we just picking and choosing? How could we possibly say that? Second, we're going to look at some, some of the maybe more frequently asked questions about uh, this issue. Hopefully, I, I, I'm going to hit some of the big ones. Maybe questions that are already stirring in your mind about this hopefully i'm going to address some of those i know i can't do all of them but i'm going to address i think what some of the bigger ones are and uh, not only help you to understand it but also equip you to be able to talk about it with others because your friends who are not believers they have the internet they know about this stuff right and they may ask you about it in fact tom shared with me this week that um uh, that uh, at one point when he was addressing the gospel of Mark, he had a teenager come up to him and ask him, well, what about these verses here? Right. People are going to ask about these things. So we'll look at the evidence, the questions, and then the, and then the reason why Mark may actually have intended for his gospel to end at verse 8. If verses 9 to 20 aren't authentic, then Mark's gospel ends at verse 8. Why would he end it at verse 8? So we're going to look at that. Uh, And I hope with the Lord's help, this is going to uh, boost and strengthen your confidence uh, as a follower of Christ who wants to defend the integrity and reliability of Scripture. So let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord, we do give you thanks for your Word, and uh, we, we trust that it is authoritative and perfect. Every word of God proves true. And Lord, these questions, these things that we have to wrestle through are are hard, they're complex, but they're important. And so will you help us to, to think well about this? Will you help me to speak clearly and to be found faithful as we think about your word together? In Jesus' name. Amen. So, first, we want to look at what's the evidence? What's the evidence for why we could say the long ending of Mark is not originally part of the Bible? That, and that's important because when we talk about the Bible being the Word of God, we mean the Bible in its original documents the original documents that the apostles put pen to paper. The first thing I want you to know is that if you have a modern English translation of the Bible, this is not a secret, okay? This is not something that Bible scholars have hidden and are are trying to uh, have a conspiracy hatch to keep this from you, right? This is not hidden. If you look, if you have the New American Standard Bible, which is what we use here, so that would be if you have one of the hardback blue ones that we have, and you look in Mark 16... In verse nine, there's a footnote, and the footnote says this. Later, and it says MSS, MSS means manuscripts. Later manuscripts add verses nine to 20. It's right there in a footnote, it tells you. It's later manuscripts, that is not the earliest copies of the Gospel of Mark that we have, but later ones add verses nine to 20. And to, to show that they're not sure that these are authentic, they put it in brackets. All right, so verse 9 starts with a little bracket and then all the way down to verse 20 it ends in a bracket. Right. This is true for uh, almost every other major modern English translation. I don't know of any that don't do this. Uh, the ESV says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 to 20. The ESV actually... Puts a space between verse verse 8 and verse 9 and puts that in there. CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, some of the earliest manuscripts conclude with 16.8. The NIV, which many of you probably have, uh, puts a space between verse 8 and verse 9. Actually puts verses 9 to 20 in brackets and makes it in uh, uh, italics. So they're really trying to point out to you there's something different about these verses And they say the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses nine to 20. And then the NLT or the New Living Translation does the same thing and says, the most ancient manuscripts of Mark conclude with verse 16, eight. So this is not a secret, it's right there in your Bible. The question is, have you ever taken notice of it? And if you've taken notice of it, have you just tried to bury your head in the sand and say, I I really don't wanna deal with that. Um, I'm just gonna pretend like that doesn't exist. Right? Now, the exception to this would be if you have a King James Bible. If you have a King James Bible, you're not going to have these things. We're going to talk about that, uh, the reason that is, uh, in a few minutes. Uh, but if you have a modern uh, English translation, you're going to have a note like this. So, so right off the bat, we can say, this is not a secret, this is something that's, that's out there that we, that we know about and have known about for a long, long time. So somebody comes to you and says, well, listen, you. I bet you don't know this, but... There's an error in the Bible because you don't know how the Gospel of Mark ends. You'd be like, no, we've known about that for literally 2,000 years. This is not new. So, how is it exactly then that we can say the long ending is not original? Well, what we do is we do what's called textual criticism. I know some of you are getting ready to get up and leave. You're like, this is so boring right? Stick with me because this is important. You need to be equipped on how to be able to talk to people about this stuff because this is important for our defense of our faith. Textual criticism is is this. It's the discipline that attempts to determine the original wording of any documents whose original document no longer exists. This discipline is needed for the New Testament too because the originals no longer exist. Now that may be news to you, we don't have the original documents of the Bible. That is, we don't have the original copy of the Gospel of Mark, right? And it's not hard to imagine why, right? They, they, they wrote these, uh, these books just like anybody did in the ancient world on perishable material, paper or animal skin. And after decades of use, they begin to fall apart, right? I have books that are printed with really high-quality material and after decades of use, they begin to fall apart. We're talking about 2,000 years ago. So it's not surprising that we don't actually have this stuff anymore. So we don't have the originals, but what we have are copies, lots and lots and lots and lots of copies of all of the books of the New Testament from all over the ancient world. And so what we do is we, we take all of the copies we can and we compare them all. We see where do they agree, where are there some variants in the copies, because if you've ever tried to copy a verse of the Bible, I don't think I can copy a verse of the Bible and not make a mistake copying it, right? I'm always looking back and forth, and I miss a word or something, and I I always have to copy in pencil, because I always get it wrong. So in copying, there's inevitably some variance. What we do is we collect all the copies, and we look at where they're the same, where they're different, and we ascertain what the original reading was, and we do this for any ancient document. And just as an aside, it's important for you to know that we're not talking about having two or three or four or ten copies of uh, the the New Testament and and comparing them, right? For for an average uh, Greek author from that age, we have maybe about 20 copies of their work, right? And and we, we compare those, and then we can we can have a copy of, of Plato's Republic or or uh, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey or any of these ancient Greek books, and we like we can think based on that we have a pretty good idea of what this person actually wrote. With twenty copies, there's almost six thousand copies of the New Testament. We have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the. The copies, the manuscripts, the ancient evidence for uh, the Bible. And so what we do is we we compare them and we try to figure out, well, which one, uh, what has the earliest, most original reading? And that's what ends up in your Bible. Now, far from from lessening our confidence in the Word of God, this actually boosts our confidence in the Word of God. You see, if... uh, if we are so confident that we can reconstruct the original text of the New Testament with a very high degree of accuracy, far more uh, confidence than we have in any other ancient uh, document, then that actually leads us to be able to look at something like the long ending of Mark and say, reliably say, we don't actually think that's original. Right? What I mean is this. If we weren't certain about everything else in the New Testament, then there's no way that we could really ask this question about whether or not the long ending of Mark is authentic because we would just be saying, well, we don't know if anything's authentic. And that's what some people will try to convince you is the case when we ask questions like this, but it's not the case. The very fact that we can ask this question about whether or not this is authentic is based on the fact that we are so certain about everything else. It would be like if we were with the Secret Service and we're looking for counterfeit money. The only way that we're going to know if there's money that's counterfeit is if we know what genuine money looks like and we've seen a lot of it and we're able to tell, we're able to feel, we're able to touch, we're able to to see and that's counterfeit, that's not original. If we don't have any genuine money that we know is genuine, there's no way that we can say that anything is counterfeit because we don't know the difference. That's not the case with the New Testament, we're so certain about so much of it that we can ask questions like this, and it actually shows us how how reliable the Bible is. Okay, so what's the evidence? Well, first, the two earliest and most important copies of Mark, of the whole gospel of Mark that we have, don't have the long ending. They clearly end the gospel at verse 8. So you can actually go online uh, and, and, uh, and view the pages of these books, these ancient documents. Right, you can't go and touch them anymore, um, but they've taken pictures of them. So you can go look. And uh, I, I was thinking of putting pictures up here and showing you, and then I realized that that would be even more boring than you it pr- probably already is, and so I decided not to do that. Um, so, but but if you were to look at it, you could see they end the gospel at verse eight, and then it's not just like you turn the page. And it's like, oh, well, that's where the, the long ending would go. They, they end the gospel at verse 8, and then they put a line underneath verse 8, and then afterwards, basically says the end. So both of these copies are very, very clear. They thought the gospel ended at verse 8. They're the two earliest and most important and reliable copies of Mark that we have. And so those have a lot of weight to them as we think about this question. Second, there are copies of Mark that contain the long ending, but they have notations in the margins indicating that these verses are probably not original. So it'd be a lot like what we have in our Bibles today. There'll be a copy of the Gospel, it'll have the long ending, but next to the long ending it'll have these little asterisks or bullets or something that's indicating that the reader needs to uh, take caution in this, say this is probably not original, but it was in the manuscript that they were copying from so I said, we're going we're to include it because it's, it's in the one that I have, but we're pretty sure it's not original. Third, several copies of Mark contain a note between verse 8 and verse 9. So you have verse 8, and then you have a space with a note in it uh, that says something like the end. In many copies, the evangelist ended here, at verse 8 but in many this also, and then they would write verses 9 to 20. So it's it by a note saying, listen, there's a, there's a bunch of copies that don't have anything beyond this, but there are others that, that do, and that's sort of like what we have in our Bibles, a note telling you this is where Mark ended, but some copies also have this, so we're going to include that as well. And fourth, the long ending contains several words and phrases that are not used anywhere else in the gospel of Mark. If you were to read Mark in Greek, it would read like somebody other than Mark wrote it, in terms of the words, the grammar, and so forth. So that's not a slam dunk that Mark didn't write it, but all of those things put together make us think, we have some very significant questions about that. And then we have the testimony of church history. And these two fine-looking gentlemen. These are two of the most important scholars from the, from the early church, Eusebius and Jerome. Both of them collected manuscripts and they were working on putting together editions of the Bible. And uh, Eusebius, as he was doing this in the early 300s, said this, The accurate copies conclude the story, according to Mark, in the words, and they were afraid. It's the end of verse 8. For the end is here in nearly all the copies of Mark. So according to Eusebius in the early 300s, the most accurate copies of Mark that he had and almost all the copies of Mark that he had ended at verse 8. Jerome, who was later in the 300s, as he was working, said that the long ending is found in scarcely any copies of the gospel. Almost all of the Greek codices or books are without this passage. And so you have all the copies we have, and then you have these, these two church uh, historians and scholars who are working with the Bible and saying, all the copies that we have don't have this. There are some that do, but they're not the earliest ones, they're not the most reliable ones. Almost everything is, ends at verse 8. So the evidence would point to us uh, that that Mark probably ended his gospel at verse 8. So if that's the evidence, then we have to answer some questions about that. Well, first is, if these verses weren't original, how did they end up in my Bible? Right? Well, there's two parts to that question. One, how did they end up in any copies of Mark at all? And two... How did they end up in our English translation of the Bible, okay? So first, we, we don't know exactly how or when uh, these verses would have shown up in Mark. It's probably in sometime in the second century, so we're thinking A.D. 100s-ish, but you're like, well, that's really, that's really, really early. It's like, well, but it's also probably about 100 years after Mark actually wrote the gospel, so it probably ends up there, and, and you can kind of imagine why. We, I mean, we can make an, uh, an educated guess. If Mark ends at verse 8, it can seem kind of abrupt. Right? It's kind of anticlimactic. And so it's possible that a scribe who's copying the gospel uh, might have assumed that the end was missing from his copy, or he thought, you know, I'm going to want the readers uh, to know something more about what happened, and so... He does is he decides to draw from the other endings of the other gospels and kind of construct his own summary of the resurrection appearances now whether or not he intended for that to be taken as scripture which would be wrong or if he intended for it to be sort of like his own little study note uh, the next person to copy his copy maybe doesn't know the difference he only has one copy of Mark to look at. It's the one in front of him, and so he puts it in there as if it's Scripture, and it's that easy. So that's probably how it, got, it ended up somewhere. and don't, I don't know that that's exactly what happened, but something like that is probably what happened. And the question about how it ended up in our translations of the Bible, it's a little more complex. It's a long story, but here's the short version. And after I'm done, you're going to say, can you do the shorter version? Than that Here's the short version it's probably because of the King James Bible, okay? The King James Bible was translated in 1611, uh, and for 300 years was the most important English translation uh, in in the world. It was basically the only English translation used by Protestants. Uh, So it's very, very important. It's very, very important for the history of the English language and the history of the Bible in the English language. It's a a work of art, it's tremendous, Uh, but, When they translated it, they were using a Greek New Testament that had been uh, edited and compiled by this guy named Erasmus. Uh, Erasmus is one of my heroes. Now it's not because he's a good theologian, he's actually a pretty bad theologian, Um, but he was a tremendous scholar and Erasmus at one point said this, when I get a little money, I buy books. If any is left, I buy food and clothes. (laughs) This is what I live by. My wife would, would tell you that. So Erasmus, Erasmus was a great scholar, and he puts together the Greek New Testament. He collects all the manuscripts that he has access to in Western Europe in the late 15th century, so late 1400s, early 1500s. And, and then this is the Greek New Testament that everybody in Western Europe is using to, to look at the Bible. The problem is the only manuscripts that he had available of Mark had the long ending. And so, naturally, that's what he put in. And so then when they're translating the King James, that's the Greek Bible that they have. What happens then is, in the 1800s, we begin to discover all of these manuscripts all over the the ancient world, all over the Mediterranean, from Spain to Palestine. We we have all of these uh, different manuscripts being discovered, and a lot of them are really old, and a lot of them are different than ones that, that Erasmus was using. The reality is not much different in fact they agree in almost every place except for this long ending of mark we get to these older manuscripts and and it's not there and if the translators of the king james bible had had access to to these old manuscripts they probably would have used them maybe not included the long ending so even if we can say uh, that based on the, the, the evidence of the copies and everything that we have, the long ending is not original. It stays in your Bible uh, partially because of the influence of the King James Bible. Um, because of how important the King James is in the history of English Bible translation, they, they leave it in. Uh, one example would be in the, in the Net Bible, the New English translation, they have a footnote that says, Uh, about the long ending double brackets have been placed around this passage to indicate that most likely it was not part of the original text of the gospel of mark that's what we've been saying in spite of this the passage has an important role in the history of the transmission of the text the history of the copying of the text so it's been included in the translation so the reason it gets included is because it's had an important role in the history of the bible being copied And yet modern translations will tell you straight up, as we just saw, well, these were probably not original. Now, does this mean that the Bible has errors in it? That's gonna be a no. The Bible does not have errors in it. And there's a couple things with, with, regarding the long ending of Mark we have to talk about with this. Um, When we talk about the Bible being without error, We mean that the Bible uh, makes no mistakes and always tells the truth in everything that it affirms and intends to teach in the original manuscripts. Now, we don't have the original manuscripts, but we can uh, reconstruct with such a high degree of certainty what the original manuscripts actually said that we can be confident that this book that we are holding here is indeed the very Word of God. But... If Mark 16, 9 to 20 wasn't in the original manuscript, then it really doesn't matter whether anything that it says has error in it, because it it is no more inerrant than something that I would write, which is very errant. The other thing is, I said, well, does my Bible have errors in it because it includes it? And I would say no. I've seen copies of the Bible where there's typos, right? Because some editor who is printing the Bible, because there are real people who work on these, this, you know, these books don't just get dropped out of heaven. Um, I think there's places where there's typos. Well, does that mean that, that my Bible has errors in it? Well, no, we all kind of implicitly know that that's not what we mean when we say the Bible is without error, right? And so the fact that, that our Bibles include this has nothing to do with whether or not there's errors in the Bible. That's a totally separate conversation. Does this mean that we can just pick and choose what verses we do and don't want to be original? So this is something that you'll hear skeptics say. They say, well, if you say that the long ending of Mark is not original, then you can just pick and choose whatever you want. Well, what's, what's not happening here is probably what that skeptic is intending to communicate. What's not happening is us looking at the Bible saying, you know, we like this, we don't like that, so this thing we like was original, this thing we don't like was not original. That's not what's happening, right? We're just looking at the evidence that we have and saying we have to make a decision based on the historical evidence that we have. But we're not doing like what Thomas Jefferson did. So you've heard of this. Thomas Jefferson uh, was a deist. He didn't believe in the Trinity or the divinity of Christ. And he uh, decided he was gonna take a Bible and he's gonna cut out all the parts he liked and he was gonna make his own Bible. And so that's what he did. He went out and he cut out all the stuff that he liked and what he really liked was all the stuff about the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. He really liked all of that, but he didn't like anything in the Bible that referred to Jesus as being divine, the son of God, doing miracles or rising from the dead. He didn't like that, it didn't fit with his worldview. So he left that out, he cut out all the stuff he liked, pasted it in his own book, and called it the life and morals of Jesus Christ, right? So that's not what we're doing, to be exceedingly clear, right? We're not looking at this and saying, well, I don't like what's in the long ending of Mark, therefore we're going to say it's not original. There's actually nothing that's particularly objectionable in the long ending of Mark, and and we're going to talk in a minute about actually most of it is drawn from other places in the Bible, So so there's nothing that we are are looking at there and saying, well, we're kind of embarrassed about that. We don't want that to be in the Bible. That's that's not the case. It's merely because of the textual evidence. So no. If the long ending was not original, are there lots of other verses in my Bible that are not original? This is something that I would imagine some of you are thinking. Well, if this isn't there, how can I trust any of it? How can, how can I try Are there so many other verses that we don't know original? And the answer is no. Right? I, I went through our hardback blue Bibles this week. So you have one. I went through that, that book that you have in your hands. And I looked in the New Testament, and I, looked, and I, and I went to find everywhere I could find where the uh, editors of the NASB had put a verse in brackets, which means there's question about its authenticity. Okay? I went through the whole New Testament, looked everywhere I could find. There are 43 verses. Right now you be like 43. That's a ton. There are seven thousand uh, five hundred and no what seven thousand. Where's my number? There are seven thousand nine hundred and fifty-seven verses in the New Testament. So it means we're talking about 0005 percent of the New Testament, where we have some question about whether a verse is authentic or not. And just to give you, uh, to, to help you be confident in that, you might say, oh my word, are, you know. Most of those, we can explain why they're probably not authentic. The two biggest ones are the end of Mark and then a passage in the Gospel of John. The rest of them are little passages scattered here and there, and most of them are just repeats from elsewhere in Scripture. Or they read like study notes that some scribe put in to explain something on the way. You can explain those. So, but we can have confidence in 99.995% of the New Testament is what it's supposed to be. That level of confidence for an ancient document is nothing short of miraculous. There is no other ancient document that can claim that kind of certainty. God in His divine providence has so preserved his word that we can have great certainty in it. Now, do we lose something by claiming these verses are not original to Mark? I mean, do we lose something theologically? Do we lose a a major teaching of scripture or anything like that? The answer is no. We don't. And in fact, it's the same with any textual variant, any place where we have a question. We don't actually lose anything. There's no doctrine of the Christian faith that is based on one of these passages. Um, And in fact, the long ending of Mark looks as if it's a patchwork of other resurrection appearances from the other gospels, right? So Mark 16, 9 to 11, uh, talking about Mary Magdalene reporting the, the resurrection to the disciples, that looks a lot like Luke 24, verse 1 to 12. Mark 16, 12 and 13 is the, uh, Jesus appearing to uh, disciples who are walking on the road. It seems a lot like the disciples walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 13 to 35. Mark 16, 14 to 16, Jesus shows up while the disciples are eating and he appears to them and rebukes them for their unbelief. Well, that's exactly what happened in Luke 24, 36 to 49. Verse 17 and 18, this is the one that uh, people get caught up on sometimes because it says stuff about some weird signs that they're going to pick up demons and speak in tongues, pick up uh, serpents, heal the sick, drink poison and live. And uh, all of those, with the one exception of drink poison and live, are things that happen in the book of Acts. That these are indeed signs that follow the apostles. I don't think those Those verses are commanding people to pick up snakes or cast out demons, as some denominations would make you think. He's saying these are things that are going to confirm everything that was said, everything that Jesus said, and confirm the the message that the apostles are preaching. The one place where it's not is this uh, uh, thing about drinking poison and living. And there's actually a very early tradition in the church. Tradition doesn't mean that it's authoritative, but there was a story in the early church about one of the disciples uh, during his ministry was made to drink poison and lived, and that's reported in Eusebius' church history. So it's quite possible that whoever wrote this had a copy of the Gospel of Luke in front of them and was just summarizing what Luke was saying, uh, had a copy of Acts in front of him. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, so maybe he had the two volume set. He sprung and got the two volume set. And, uh, and maybe he's also got a copy of Eusebius' church history. Or, he, or, or he's got, uh, uh, he, he has something, he knows of this tradition of this disciple and what, and what happened. And so he constructs this account. Mark 16 19, it's the ascension. Mark 16 20 reports that the disciples did indeed go out and preach, and that the Lord confirmed his preaching by these signs, and that's what. Luke says in Acts 14 3 that the Lord bore witness to the word of his grace by signs and wonders done at the hands of the apostles so all of these things everything that's taught in Mark 16 that one exception is actually found elsewhere in the gospels now that doesn't mean that the long ending is original but it certainly means that there's nothing in it that we are to to be embarrassed about it's all t- taught elsewhere in scripture But I would say I wouldn't recommend drinking poison and seeing whether or not this is true. So hopefully that's going to answer some of your questions. I know it's not going to answer all of them. I'm happy to talk to you if you have more questions uh, uh, about that. But I actually think this gives us great confidence in the Word of God. And the fact that we can even ask these questions and seek to answer them shows that we don't have to be afraid as, as Christians because we believe that our book is absolutely true and we don't need to to fear the questions that people will ask of it because we think we have really good answers because if the bible is what god says it is we don't need to be afraid we don't need to stick our heads in the sand we can actually engage with people on this knowing that we have good answers that god is going to testify to the truth of his word I hope it also gives you confidence because you know these questions are not new or secret so if somebody brings this up you can say oh yeah I've heard about that before and and here's here's an answer to it I'd much rather have you hear about it from me and have us be able to talk through well no this is this is the evidence it's not a big deal let's let's talk about it rather than have you hear it from somebody who's trying to get you to disbelieve the word of God and have you not know how to respond but now to close, I want to finish with this. If the long ending of Mark was not original, why would Mark end at verse 8? Right? And it's this very question that may have gotten that long ending written in the first place because somebody thought, well, Mark couldn't have intended to end at verse 8. It's just the women run away and are afraid. That's kind of an anticlimactic way to end the gospel. Right? But I think there's a reason for it. Remember, Mark's not just writing a biography of Jesus. He's writing a gospel. It is His book is actually a proclamation of the good news about Jesus. It's a declaration that Jesus is the Christ, that He died for our sins, that He was buried, and on the third day, He rose again. And with that in mind, Mark's purpose in ending at verse 8 likely has something to do with his overall purpose in writing the book to begin with. Right? The very first words of the Gospel of Mark are the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I think the very end, he's coming back to that. He's saying, I, I, I want to come back and have you answer this question about who you say Jesus is. Right? Mark in his Gospel is not seeking only to inform, he's also seeking to evangelize. And so we get this, and, and Mark If it ends at verse 8, he ends in this open-ended way in order to draw us into the story and make us uh, make a decision. If we had been with the women at the tomb, how would we have responded? Who do we say that Jesus is? Right? Mark has said Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God. The demons say that Jesus is the Holy One of God and the Son of the Most High God. Peter and the disciples say, you are the Christ. The centurion at the cross after Jesus dies says, truly this man was the Son of God. And Jesus himself, when he's asked if he's the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, under oath in the Jewish Supreme Court, responds, I am. We have all of this evidence through the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is, uh, and, and Mark is constructing this story to show you the identity of who Jesus is. And then we get to the end, and Jesus, as He's, as he's telling people His identity, and, and, and as people are figuring it out, and He's saying, now the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem, He's going to suffer, He's going to die, and on the third day, He's going to rise again. And He tells the disciples that three times. And then look what it says in verse... In, uh, in chapter 16, the women come to the tomb. They're looking up. They saw the stone has been rolled away in verse 4. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who's been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, And there you will see him just as he told you. The angel announces to the women that Jesus' word is confirmed. He told you this was going to happen. And it happened and it proves that he is exactly who he said he was. It proves that he is the Christ, the Son of God. The tomb is empty. The gospel announces that Jesus has risen from the dead. And we are confronted with the very same thing that the women are confronted with here in the empty tomb. We don't see the resurrected Jesus. And we know from the other Gospels that they do later, but right here, we don't see Him. And here today, we don't see physically the resurrected Jesus. But what we have is a divine word. We have a declaration with divine authority that says, Jesus was raised from the dead, even though you haven't seen Him. So we're confronted with this question, on the basis of that word from God, who will we say that Jesus is? Will we believe and worship, or will will we be like Thomas who said, unless I see, I will never believe? We believe based on the word, or will we demand a sign? So who do you say that Jesus is? This is why Mark ends at verse 8. He wants you to be confronted with this question. Who do you say that he is? Right? If, if he's risen from the dead, then everything else he said is confirmed. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. He gave his life as a ransom for many so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The Gospel of Mark does not permit us to be agnostic about Jesus. It doesn't permit us to finish reading and say, boy, that was a nice story. I hope I get to read another biography of somebody someday. It confronts us with this man who claimed to be God, who claimed to be king, who claimed to be Lord, rose from the dead to prove it. Now, what are you going to do about it? Either he's not the Son of God and we don't need to waste our time with him, or he is the Son of God and he demands our total allegiance. And by ending his gospel at verse 8, Mark confronts his audience, confronts us with this most important question that we'll ever have to answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? He draws us into the story of the gospel. It says that we too need to make a decision about what to do with Jesus. And Jesus himself has already told us what it is that we need to do. At the beginning of Mark, Jesus says... The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. It is powerful. We give you thanks that it is so trustworthy and reliable and that we can have such confidence in it because it's from you. We thank you for the way that you have so meticulously preserved it. And God, we we thank you that we have the privilege of being able to read it, to study it, that we might know you and that we might know Jesus Christ whom you sent. Lord, help us today uh, to walk out of here with our allegiance to Jesus and confidence in his word. We pray in his name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week and Happy New Year. Built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest friend.